0: Chapter 10, Part 2 of 40,000 Miles Over Land and Water. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Jennifer Painter. 40,000 Miles Over Land and Water by Ethel Gwendolyn Vincent. Chapter 10 Tasmania and Victoria. Part 2 Tuesday, November the 4th. Today was the Cup Day, the greatest event in the racing calendar of Australasia, the blue ribbon of their turf. Melbourne was en fete, with its shops closed and work suspended everywhere, a general holiday. Those who were not at the races were in the streets looking at those who were going, and there was a look of generally suppressed excitement as to how the event of the day would turn out. It is very difficult for us at home, with our interests spread over such a much larger area, to realise the intense, the concentrated interest that is felt throughout Australia on the result of the Cup. It has been the object of speculation, of discussion, and of incessant anxiety to millions for the past few weeks. The excitement is reaching the culminating point today, and there are not a few whose interest at stake is so large that they tremble and long for the day to be over. In short, it is the red-letter day of the Australasian yearbook. We joined in the general feeling of expectation as we drove along in the stream of carriages that from every side street and road converged to the main one, flowing towards Flemington Racecourse. And as we neared the scene, we saw that the hill behind the stand was black with the mass of human beings upon it, and the lawn and the terrace were crowded. In our royal progress up the course, the governor received an ovation of loyalty in the cheers and enthusiasm of the densely packed crowd. The first race was over hurdles, and after the second we went to luncheon. It was not quite such a pleasant day as the previous Saturday, on account of the great crowd. The pretty toilettes were not so well seen, being lost among the many ugly ones, for the... Country cousin contingent were in strong force to day. The cup was run at 4 p.m. Never shall I forget the strain and tension on every face as the cry passed up, They're off! The few quick observations that escaped some as the horses passed the stand, and then the strange stillness that prevailed as we watched the coloured specks flying along the horizon as the horses settled down to their work. The minutes were ages life seemed suspended in that mass of human beings the strain and tension suddenly gave way as the horses were round the corner and a faint hum ran along far away down the black line they're coming and the murmur rose into cheers and the cheers into shouts and the shouts ended by the waving of hats and handkerchiefs as amidst the most intense and extraordinary excitement malua the winner of the cup in eighteen eighty four. "'flew past the judge's box. "'Commotion ran second. "'We took up life again where we had left it "'and breathed freely once more. "'Rushing down, we pushed our way through the crowds "'in time to see the horses weighed in in the paddock "'by special permission from one of the stewards. "'A royal progress Malua made back to the paddock. "'The crowd leaned over the barrier and cheered and vociferated. "'Well done, Malua, well done!' "'and her jockey raised his cap many a time "'in acknowledging the cheers of the populace, "'for Malua had been the general favourite. "'We saw all the horses weighed in. "'The jockeys looked such mere stable boys out of the saddle "'and came on to the scales with saddle, cloth and bridle in their hands. "'Many of them had to ride with lead weights to bring them up to scale. "'We drove off the course before the last race, "'the crowds melting and streaming away over the open plain,' as soon as the cup the excitement of the day was over wednesday november the fifth preparations for the ball at government house that evening were going on all day at ten p m the governor and lady loch with the guests staying in the house and the staff entered the ballroom and passed down to the dais at the end while the band played god save the queen eleven hundred invitations had been sent out but the magnificent ballroom was not too crowded and Herr Plosch's band in the gallery sent forth dreamy strains. It was nearly 3 a.m. before one of the most successful balls ever given in Government House at Melbourne was finished. It was succeeded the next night by an excellent concert given by the Metropolitan Liedertafel under the directorship of Mr Hertz. Thursday, November the 6th. "'I went with Lady Locke in the afternoon "'to an organ recital at the Town Hall. "'It is a magnificent organ, "'very celebrated in the colonies, "'and finer than that of the Albert Hall. "'Driving through the town afterwards, "'the streets were so full "'and the air so fresh and bright "'that it seemed like some spring afternoon in London "'with the season beginning. "'Mr. Service, the Premier, "'Lady Stall, wife of the Chief Justice, "'and others,' dined in the evening. Some of the party disappeared early to go to a dance in the neighbourhood. There are known to be thirty dances in Melbourne fixed for this month of November. And other favourite form of amusement are large theatre parties. The host invites some twenty or thirty friends to meet him at the theatre on such a night by a little card printed expressly for this purpose with RSVP in the corner. He takes the tickets, but it is the exception for there is to be a supper afterwards, and the point of the entertainment appears to be, in whom sits next to who? Melbourne society is dreadfully divided into cliques and sets, which may be partly attributed to the many suburbs into which the town is partitioned. There are the suburbs of St Kilda, Brighton, South Yarra, Toorack, Hawthorne, etc., and drawing an imaginary line from the town hall, They may be said to extend out round the town to a distance of six miles. I heard many complaints about the great distances, and the social inconvenience occasioned thereby. We saw Melbourne during its carnival of the race week, and it would not be fair to judge of its gaieties, which were overwhelming just at that time, but I believe it is a fact that all who possibly can do give dances, small and frequently. There are two houses in which dancing floors have been laid on carriage springs, and all the large houses have their separate ballroom. We were surprised to find how beautifully appointed were most of these houses, though outside they all look much the same, and merely handsome villa residences. Dress is much thought of, and people in Melbourne dress very handsomely, very expensively, but too brilliantly. Not a few of its residents have their gowns and bonnets out from the best London houses. Buck-jumping was the order for Friday November the 7th. At three in the afternoon, besides ourselves, some fifty others were collected in the paddock to see the famous buck-jumping of Australian horses. Those that we saw were provided by Mr Chumley, picked out from the police paddock at Dandenong. But though they may have been picked buck-jumpers, most australian horses for reasons unknown are born with buck-jumping propensities which are only knocked out of them by the rough riders so successful are these trainers that a fortnight after the exhibition we were seeing they will be used on patrol duty the first process of difficulty is the saddling and mounting for which the horse has to be blindfolded on the near side no sooner do they feel their rider vaulting into the saddle with his knees firmly inserted under the croppers or large pommels which you see in all colonial saddles than they rise up into the air and descend with their forelegs stiffened straight out and, tucking their head between them, kick viciously out behind. One horse always tried to kick the spur, which has to be pretty freely used, for if once they stood still they would buck their rider out of the saddle in a trice, and it is found to be of great importance that they should be mastered at the first try. Another horse whinnied, quivering with suppressed rage, and after some convulsive wriggling rushed headlong at the fence behind which we were standing. The rough riders ride so splendidly that they seem part of the horse, rising and falling with the movement of the bucking. Sometimes, when the horse cannot rid himself of them in any other way, he has been known to wriggle himself out of the saddle, causing it to slip over his head. A most excellent account of the buck-jumping appeared in the Argus of the next morning, from which I give the following extracts. The first mount was given to Evans, one of the rough riders. He had to deal with a rakish-looking bay with a wicked eye who arched his back like a hedgehog when the saddle was put on him. As soon as Evans vaulted into the saddle, the brute gracefully waltzed round three times to gird up his loins, and then, putting his head between his forelegs, charged into the fence, bucking all the way. Evans slipped adroitly from the saddle as the horse came to the ground, and quickly remounting him, stuck to the saddle like a centaur till the animal was perfectly subdued. The next comer was a bay mare who showed the most accomplished tactics, but Priestley, a sail trooper, was an adept in all the artifices of pig-jumping and spinning on all-fours, with perplexing gymnastics to vary the programme. A grey, half-bred Arab showed the fire in his blood as soon as he was led out, but Faulkner got safely into his seat while the girths were threatening to part, and enjoyed a jump of twenty-five feet. "'and a teetotum-like swirl at the first bound "'as a sample of what was to come. "'But the greatest treat was to come. "'Simpson, a professional horse-breaker, "'got on a brown, blue, light mare, "'which submitted to be saddled as quietly as a lady's palfrey, "'but as soon as she felt Simpson's weight, "'she wildly rose upright and went right across the paddock "'in a series of the wildest rearing freaks.' Simpson rode stirrupless for fear the horse should fall back upon him, and by a combination of the rarest pluck, judgment, grip, and nerve, kept his balance apparently as easily as if he was sitting in a rocking-chair. Each time the maddened creature sprang up erect, he coolly clasped his hands under the mare's neck and swayed as gracefully as a circus-track performer. When at last he rode back with the mare quite under control, he was loudly applauded. Priestley then rode a bay which getting under way at full gallop darted for the fence taking imaginary fences on the journey while the trooper sat well back the model of a close firm seat after colliding with the fence the bay broke away across the paddock but was safely brought up at the lower end the last exhibitor was old anchorite a faithful performer in harness for sixteen years but a twenty year old bucker since he was sold to the department rough riders innumerable have tried to subdue the old warrior's aversion to the saddle but with how little success we saw yesterday anchorite is not so lissom as some of his young competitors for evil distinction but he has learned a few lessons which would be peculiarly disconcerting to a novice he fell with simpson in making a supreme effort to stand upon his nose but seeing this trooper's performance in the previous round The spectators were satisfied that nothing quadrupedal which would keep upon its legs would unseat him. As a matter of fact, none of the riders were thrown, although several of their horses came down, and it was gratifying to be able to say that the Australian sport of riding buck jumpers was, with the exception of Evans, displayed by Australian-born riders. Saturday, November the 8th We went to the last day of the races, the steeplechase day, as it is called, because of the second race on the card. At the wooden fence of four foot seven inches, which was immediately succeeded by a stone wall, and opposite the stand, we saw two horses come down. One jockey recovered and went on over the stone wall in such a plucky manner that he was loudly applauded. A little farther on, poor Friendless, a favourite horse, broke his shoulder over the hurdles and had to be shot. The Canterbury Plate caused great interest, because Malua and Commotion, the first and second winners of the Cup, were to meet again. Amid a scene of great excitement, Malua was beaten, and Commotion came in first. It was a bright, warm day, but the pretty toilettes were exhausted, and the novelty of the scene had passed away. The Victoria Racing Clubs set a good example to other race meetings by extending their four days' racing over the space of a week monday november the tenth the prince of wales birthday and observed as a public holiday throughout the colonies what an excellent thing it would be if his royal highness and the princess of wales were to visit australasia they would receive the unanimous welcome of a mighty people such as even they have not yet known the governor and his staff started with c and mr wallop for brighton where there was a grand review of the victorian naval and military forces ending in a sham fight, the enemy landing from nine vessels of war and being repulsed by the militia on shore. It was terribly sultry and close, and they all came home late, very dusty, tired, and hot, to go to a state banquet given by the mayor-elect at the town hall that evening. Tuesday, November 11th We made an expedition for the day to Ballarat to see the gold mine belonging to the Band and Albion Company, Captain Dale, of HMS Diamond, came with us, and we left Spencer Street Terminus at 11am. Two hours in the train brought us to Geelong, where we stopped fifteen minutes for luncheon. Geelong is prettily situated on Corio Bay, a continuation of Port Phillip. It has 23,000 inhabitants now, but once it hoped to rival Melbourne. The country we passed through was flat and uninteresting, though all under cultivation, but here you would rather acquire six acres for one sheep instead of the six sheep to one acre of some parts of New Zealand. Now we were able fully to realise the exceeding monotony of the blue gum, which we had previously heard so much about. Nature has fixed upon the gum or eucalyptus tree as the tree appropriate to Australian soil, and wherever you look you see its straggling branches and dull, ineffective blue foliage with light grey stems. They grow too luxuriantly, as in many places we saw fields that were being cleared of them by barking or cutting a ring on the trunk some four feet above the ground, causing death through the non-communication of the sap. But it is a noticeable fact that much that is imported or grows in Australia seems to flourish too freely. Take the cacti, the thistles, the sweetbriar, all of which are a plague to the farmer. Look at the rabbit pest, which has ruined many owners of land and which still remains the great problem of Australian agriculture. Each separate government has spent thousands annually in trying to reduce the pest, but to no avail, as it appears the more they are destroyed, the more they generate. They are now talking of building, at an enormous cost, a rabbit-proof wall all along the border of South Australia and New South Wales. Several station owners combined together and spent in one year the sum of £20,000 on the extirpation of rabbits, and on one run, one million were destroyed in a year, or over 27,000 per day. Some of the houses in the villages we passed through were roofed with shingles or narrow strips of wood. They are cheap and easily obtained, but calculated only to last some five or six years. We arrived at Ballarat at 3 p.m. and found Mr. Tyrrell, the superintendent of the police, waiting at the station for us with his buggy. He drove us quickly out to the Band and Albion mine. We had to wait whilst the night shift at 4 o'clock went down the shaft, and we watched the windlass, which winds the cage up and down by machinery, and which in this case is made of wire rope of one single piece, in place of the manila rope usually used in mines. "'I had to dress up in an old petticoat and loose jacket "'with waterproof boots "'and look like an old bathing woman "'when ready to go down the shaft. "'The mine manager was there "'and he and I and C got into the cage. Three planks of wood with an iron bar in the centre "'to which was attached a hook for the rope "'suspended us over the shaft. "'There was room for two on either side "'and we had to stand quite still and straight. "'Down we shot into pitch darkness.' through the narrow hole, just large enough for the platform, which grated against the sides, so exact was the fit, and often jerked with the uneven winding of the pulley. Down we went into the bowels of the earth, one thousand and five feet below the surface. The most curious sensation of descending the shaft is that in the darkness, though you cannot see, you feel that the walls are being passed upwards, and not downwards.' We flew by the doors of many galleries, going down to the tenth, and the last finished shaft. They are sinking yet another now, and were getting rid of the water by sending a tank of fifty gallons to the surface, suspended beneath the cage, in each of its upward journeys. We found ourselves in a cavern at the bottom, lighted by one candle, where the trucks with the quartz were standing ready to be hauled to the surface. At this moment the tank by accident overturned and emptied its contents with an alarming rush at our feet. By the light of our candles we groped along the narrow galleries, three feet wide by five feet seven inches broad, laid with a track for the wagons. The slush and mud were ankle-deep, and, at a particularly bad place, the old manager, without saying anything, quietly lifted me into a trolley and ran me along to the end of the gallery here there were two miners at work pickaxing the quartz and one had just cut a hole for the powder to blast away a large piece of quartz rock and was about to insert the fuse which burns two or three minutes before the explosion to allow of the men having time to escape we marked the dark line in the quartz within which lies hidden the precious metal and the roof overhead shone and glistened with bright sparks of gold In an upper gallery, there was an archway formed by a valuable vein, still unworked. Some time ago, a fault was found in some earth extending for 20 feet. The company can go on working their claim for some distance further on one side and almost interminably on the other, always supposing that the ore still continues. The miners work in shifts of eight hours each, receiving two pounds a week without rations, and they warm their billy or tin can of tea, which they bring down with them, over a candle. The relief of coming up to the open air again from the damp, muggy atmosphere was great. The cheerful light of day seemed a return to life from a living death. One feels curiously nervous of accidents in a mine, though there can be no more danger there than in a railway tunnel. We heartily pitied all those poor men who spend their lives in the underground pit." we next visited the gold crushing works the quartz is crushed by steam hammers each weighing sixteen tons and striking with a force of eight and a half hundredweight it then passed through water mingled with quicksilver which detaches the gold subsequently some further gold is extracted from the pyrites the remainder being valuable for knife polish and a dark red paint the band and albion mine has about six hundred acres superficial area Upwards of four million pounds of gold have already been taken from the mine, and it now pays 30%. Geologists affirm that gold could not be found at such depths, but the quartz from the lowest level yields an ounce per tonne. We drove quickly round the town and through its principal thoroughfares, out to Lake Wenduri, bordered with the pretty public gardens. We saw in the distance the Eureka Stockade, Where the miners made their celebrated defence against the authorities. It was thirty years ago that the first discovery of gold was made at Ballarat. Melbourne was deserted, and crowds flocked to the diggings, arriving in Ballarat at the rate of five hundred a day. Canvas towns sprang up, and hundreds were sleeping in the streets. Since then, Ballarat has become a thriving town of 40,000 inhabitants. Signs of the diggings are to be seen in the country round, which is gulched and mined in all directions. Huge mounds have been raised for the sinking of shafts, and some of the diggings deserted by the miners in quest of a more quickly earned reward have been taken possession of by the patient Chinese, who contrive still to get some good pickings out of them. Sandhurst, Castlemaine, Maryborough, Stall, and Creswick are other centres of great mining interests. At the bottom of Start Street at Ballarat stands the well-known Eight Hours Monument with this inscription, Eight Hours Work, Eight Hours Play, Eight Hours for Sleep, Eight Bob a Day. We dined at Craig's Hotel, left Ballarat at seven o'clock, and were back in Melbourne by eleven. Thursday, November the 13th. We left Melbourne. It was the afternoon of Lady Loch's weekly reception at Government House and we found it difficult, in the midst of it, to be able sufficiently to express to Sir Henry and Lady Locke our appreciation of their kindness and hospitality, extended to us during our fortnight's stay at Melbourne. Whilst there, several propositions had been made for us to see something of the interior of Victoria, while Sir William and Lady Clarke had very kindly asked us to stay with them at their country place and Mr. and Mrs. Ryan to go and see their celebrated gardens on Mount Macedon. Another expedition, thwarted by time, was to St. Hubert's Vineyard. Here we should have seen the best vineyard for the making of Australian wine, for Messrs. de Castella and Rowan carried off the Emperor of Germany's prize at the Melbourne Exhibition of 1881. At this competition, the best wines of Germany and France were numbered for the highest class 21 and 20, and the second at nineteen and eighteen the samples from st hubert's vineyard were ranked as high as nineteen points or equal to france and germany this vineyard has two hundred and fifty acres of vines under cultivation and produces about seventy thousand gallons per annum the australian wines are both red and white but there has been a complaint that too much alcohol has hitherto been used in their manufacture and that they are strong and heady this however is being remedied and ere long australian vineyards will rival those of bordeaux at melbourne too we were obliged to come to a decision as to whether we should accept sir william robinson's kind invitation to government house at adelaide and visit south australia but after much hesitation we decided to give up south australia partly on account of several days in the steamer in the much dreaded bite off the australian coast but mostly by reason of the pressure of time and a fear that a general election at home would possibly come to cut off the remainder of our travels. The latter reason also prevented my husband from acceding to the request of the Chief Secretary, the Honourable Graham Berry, that he would inquire into the organisation of the police and penal establishments and assist the Victorian government with his advice. End of chapter 10